This story, Easter Week 1916, is centred around Marion Square. The story also moves to Trinity College and the defence of the college during the week. The first voice you will hear is that of Patricia Woods, who recalls Marion Square and what it was like prior to the Rising, introduced here by her nephew, Robert Woods. Uh, Patricia, uh, who was born in 1904, uh, was the youngest child of my um, grandfather. She was the youngest sister of my father. There were five of them, and she came fifth in the family, and she was born, as I said, on the 5th of March, 1904. Uh, She would have spent her childhood in 39 Merrion Square in a uh, very pleasant environment it would have been in those days. There was um, servants and cooks and butlers and things like that. Uh, My recollections of of my childhood were of Merrion Square was what you might call the base. And the nursery at Merrion Square was on the top floor on the... uh, well, three stories above the, the hall door, and looking out over the square, and when we pressed our button noses against the, the glass, we could see people, just see people, walking on the pavement below. One of our great, a good deal of our life seems to have, have centred around those two windows. He had one window and I had the other. And if there was a large property of horses, we rushed to see whether it was a, a wedding or a funeral or a lot of one going down to uh, Sewell's Sale, which was round the corner in Mount Street. And Sewell's Sale was altogether horses and ponies and took place, I think, probably twice in the week. At any rate, it seemed fairly often. And we could see all the horses going down there and all the carriages and the people going. Also, it might be soldiers, the clippity-clop, I mean, might have been soldiers, and that was wildly exciting because they used the cavalry, of course, British cavalry, came along uh, with all their trappings and rattlings and in order and the rest of it, and that was a great, uh, a great uh, excitement. You have a letter here from 1916, and this was Molly uh, writing. Now, who was Molly? Uh, Interestingly, my Aunt Molly, who wrote this letter, was married to Gilbert Waterhouse, who at that time was a lecturer in Trinity College, Dublin. Her daughter, Dorothy Dunlop. Well, she married Professor Gilbert Waterhouse, who was then a professor in Trinity College, Dublin. And uh, he was an Englishman. He came from Lancashire. And... um, he was not eligible to fight in the war because he had his eyesight was not good enough. So he was in Trinity College um, in the OTC because he had been in the OTC in the Manchester Grammar School where he was was at school, and then he was at Cambridge in St John's College. And from St John's College he went to Leipzig for a. a a while to the university there as a young lecturer and then he was offered the the chair in Trinity College which suited him very well at the time and that's how he came to be in Dublin during 1916. And he was one of those who 
was involved in the defence of Trinity. And the traders and merchants of Grafton Street were very pleased and relieved that Grafton Street was not sacked in the same way as Sackville Street was. And they gave seven ceremonial swords to people who had been involved in the defence of that area, including one to Gilbert Waterhouse. That sword remains in the possession of the family and was used by Gilbert Waterhouse's grandson to cut his wedding cake about 25 years ago. Included among the photographs are two taken in Trinity, which shows soldiers there who presumably were part of the defence of Trinity. Because it was Easter, he hadn't gone home for Easter, but nearly everybody else had gone home for Easter, as you well know, and many of the professional people were out of town when the rebellion started. So um, he was in the college with a few people, not very many, some of whom were in the OTC. So it fell upon him uh, to take charge to a large degree of the defence of Trinity College during the rebellion, or the rising, whichever you like to call it. And uh, so he, he wrote all his experiences regarding that. She was the eldest of the family, and her next brother was Thornley, uh, who had been at school in uh, Shrewsbury, along with his two younger brothers. Now, he had left school that, and had gone straight into the army from the OTC in Shrewsbury School. His two brothers came home for the Easter recess, recess along with my mother from Cambridge. And, of course, once they got into Dublin, they couldn't get back. They were stuck. Uh, so that's why they were in Dublin during the rebellion, uh, not in England, where they would normally have been. And, of course, there was no post, no nothing. Uh, but she started writing more or less a day-by-day -day account and at the end of the Rising, when she was able to go back to England, she took that with her uh, and posted it to her brother who was serving in France. And who very sadly later uh, was killed yeah, in, yes. in the trenches. And the letter that survived World War I uh, and came back um, to Ireland. Don't ask me how it got back, yeah? Yes. It was probably in his personal effects. I can't think, I have no idea how it got back. But you have it here, in front of you. The, the letter is, is dated the 2nd of May, uh, 1916, which is really fairly contemporaneous with the 24th of April, uh, 1916, and um, is addressed from 39 Marion Square. Uh, there is a note, actually, uh, on the letter saying, I cannot post this letter till I get to England, as all the letters from here are being censored. I shall carry it across among my person and post it in Cambridge. Hence the delay. This is particularly an exclusive account. NB, 
I hope you have noticed the unusual dimensions of this letter. Never again tell me that I am a bad correspondent. Well, it was natural, I think. Um, she wanted her brother to know everything that had happened because it would all have been familiar to him, all the streets and everything. So how important was it to Molly uh, to, to get this letter to her brother? Well, he was uh, an Irishman who had volunteered and was fighting in the trenches and she wanted to share with him what was happening back in his hometown where a number of other Irishmen had rebelled. And she did much more than watch because as you know the, the next door house was more or less a field hospital and the two younger boys, the, the school boys, uh, they were very much involved helping bringing the wounded in on stretchers and everything like that. Certainly Jack was, for example, an ambulance bearer and I'm sure therefore my father was too. And she um, was making um, Red Cross flags, armlets, they were doing a lot of things to help uh, the people who were actually going out on the streets and uh, wanted immunity f to, to bring in the wounded and everything. And the two boys were helping with that, but she was doing more than that. And um, she was running errands. Um, as you know, the, in the neighbourhood, they were near so, um, Sir Patrick Dunn's hospital. They were near the Elpis um, nursing home and uh, they were trying to get su supplies to the doctors from one place and another to do what they were doing in number 40 and uh, she was um, eventually presented with a medal by the St John's Ambulance made. and that is all documented in, in your uh, handbook of the, of the Rising. This is a Certificate of Employment, which was issued in pursuance of authority granted by the Central Prisoners of War Committee of the British Red Cross Society and the Order of St John of Jerusalem in England. And it was to my aunt, uh, where she's recorded here under her correct name of Mary E. Woods, although she was always known in the family as Molly, of 39 Merrion Square, and the, it was the woman's, women's branch of the Royal Dublin Fusiliers Clothing Committee to be employed at 102 Grafton Street, Dublin. And it was in connection with the storage, pack, packing and dispatch of parcels to British prisoners of war. And it's dated October the 31st, 1918. Moving on through the letter, uh, the, we come to a section where she talks about the soldiers reaching Haddington Street and there was a fierce battle as the Sinn Feiners had two corner houses and the soldiers had come without a bomb or a gun of any kind and the commander tried to rush the houses. The disposition was this. The arrow showed the direction of the crossfire from the railway bridge shown in the first map and that I, and I drew. I forgot that the 
rebels held the whole railway line from Amon Street to Lansdowne Road, including Tara Street Station, Western Row and, and the Custom House. There was a fierce battle here, but they eventually fought their way down Haddington Road, being sniped at from the houses on both sides, from the parochial hall. They reached Man Street Bridge, where most, the most serious resistance of all was offered them. The heaviest fighting was the largest, and the largest number of casualties took place here. You can imagine what all this sounded like at 39 Merrion Square. We walked to the corner and peeped around. From here, we saw a good deal of what was going on and were fairly safe, as there was a large crowd drawn up in, in Mount Street watching the battle exactly as if it had been a football match. And they stopped the stray bullets. The people were perfectly indifferent and reckless. Later on, however, the bullets began to come down the street and we cleared away. My, my aunt then goes on to talk about the hospital. She says that the hospital, of course, could not accommodate all these, so they turned the nurses home into one and put the men into the nurses' beds on mattresses on the floor and anything they could get. But many had nothing at all. Daddy, that is Sir Robert Woods, who was an ear, nose and throat surgeon, was there until after twelve, looking after the men, and when we visited the corner at about 10.30pm, everything was very quiet, and there was just a great fire in Clanwellian Place. Numbers one and two were burnt out, and the roofs fell in. I have since seen the place where the house was gu our houses are gutted, and it is possibly that that is the photograph that we have here in our possession. Was there any animosity towards the... Um say the Sinn Feiners, uh, for what they did. Well, my mother felt that they did adhere to the rules of combat, you might say. They didn't, they, they were not indiscriminate in who they were shooting, perhaps I should say. Um, and, they, and they didn't fire on the, the um, stretcher bearers when they were bringing the soldier, you know, the soldiers into the hospitals and so on. But it was a very mixed up situation, as you know. Um, and there were an awful lot of civilians who were bumbling about and getting in the way, I think, or looting. And, um, and nearly all the looting was done by the ordinary riffraff around Dublin, not by the rebels. <laughs> In the course of the letter, my Aunt Molly writes that I had better mention here, in justice to the Sinn Feiners, that though you may call them rebels, lunatics and murderers, and disturbers of the peace, or any other name you can think of, the large majority of them have done what the soldiers call fought clean, of course you will hear awful stories of what they did, and I grant you their ammunition was dirty, but they did not fire on the Red Cross as some people have tried to make out. My aunt then turns her attention, I believe, to number 40 Merrion Square. 
and says that just after breakfast, Mrs. Lumsden, who had been sending off supplies of dressing from the depot next door, came in and asked if we would make some Red Cross armlets for the ambulance men as they had not enough. So we went in next door and machined furiously all morning. About 12 o'clock, an urgent request came for field dressings, and we began to make them. At about 12.30, Dr. Ella Webb arrived and asked if he could put down some mattresses in the empty room to take some of the men as they were fighting in Grattan Street and around Bolands. We turned to and worked as none of us had ever worked before or since. We beat up mattresses and all the requirements for a hospital round the square and three hours later we had 14 cases and an operation was being done in a theatre which had not existed two hours previously. When I say we, I mean a great many people connected with the depot and all the VAD people they could beat up. As well as the British soldiers, were the, um, were the volunteers, were they also brought into the same hospital? I don't think they discriminated about who was being who was wounded, but the the most of the casualties I think were caused by the uh, the snipers, the um, Sinn Fein uh, snipers, um, who were picking off the soldiers out of the streets. And what about the civilians that got caught in the crossfire? Well, that was just too bad, wasn't it? Um, yeah. And were they looked after as well? Oh yes, I mean anybody who needed attention, they tried to get them in. From 10pm on Wednesday until 4am on Thursday, there was a blessed interval of quiet during which we all slept. But at 4 o'clock, when day came again, the fighting advanced up Mount Street. Thursday and Friday were the two hottest days as far as we were concerned, though of course Mount Street was the worst fighting. Between five and six, they began firing down Grattan Street and around Bolands, and the noise was so terrific and alarming, I had not been hardened then as I was later, that I left my room and went and sat in the boys' window in front. That would have been in 39 Merrion Square. The soldiers had reached the corner and had taken command of the side of the square. They had sentries everywhere, and when I put my head out of the window, I had a gun pointed at me. I took it in with great rapidity. The soldiers searched the square and beat all the bushes for rebels. Uh, one of the things that my grandmother did <laughs> was that the hospital um, couldn't get their laundry done. Uh, and so they asked the ladies in Merrion Square if they could help. So my grandmother got the boilers going in her her uh, basement, and they wa they washed all the linen that the was that they could that was brought into them, and they got permission from the soldiers to hang it out in Merrion Square, but only um, by day. They, they had to take it in by dark, whether it was dry or not. So that was, again, something that was acknowledged 
afterwards was the help that um, Lady Woods had given uh, with the washing of the, of the hospital laundry. St John's Ambulance, as you say, were, were responsible for, for a lot of, of, of the, the caring and, and Oh, absolutely. The yes, absolutely. We unskilled people, that is, unskilled in nursing, had an urgent message sent up to as for dressings, and from five to seven we made them furiously. We also have a couple of photographs of Merrion Square outside 39 and 40 Merrion Square of a lady and a gentleman carrying in what I looked like dressings. There was one photograph taken obviously immediately before the second one and it would look as if a young girl has seen someone taking photographs and as children are wont to decided to uh, participate in the photographic process and you're correct in saying it looks as if she's actually a girl without shoes. Uh, turning back to number 40 Merrion Square, I believe that this next reference is to that by stating that the ambulance kept on arriving and by evening we had 24 cases, most of them soldiers but several civilian and one poor small boy.